Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Lost in Space CGI filmmaker Mr. Phil Hamilton. Phil is an incredibly talented 3D computer graphic artist and lifelong fan of Lost in Space. His passion for the show is well known to the online Lost in Space fan community as a result of the numerous contributions he's made over the years to several online series forums, show-related Facebook groups, and his YouTube channel. Recently, he fulfilled a long-held dream and broke new ground with his stellar 3D animated Lost in Space episode, Miracle in Space. Phil's stunning homage to Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure series is the result of his talents and months of dedicated effort. The non-commercial fan film is the closest that we will ever come to having a brand new episode of the original Lost in Space. Before we speak with him, a little background on Mr. Hamilton. Phil grew up in Dallas, Texas, and graduated from high school in Garland, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. His love of Lost in Space began when it premiered on CBS in 1965, and that devotion has never faded. In 1997, he attended a Big D Super Collectibles convention, where he met and spoke with Jonathan Harris in person. That brush with a Lost in Space celebrity started him on a road to becoming a true mega-fan of the show. In 1999, he discovered the B9 Robot Builders Club, making several lifelong friendships, and ultimately finished his own full-scale robot. In addition to his love for Lost in Space, Phil has always had a creative ambition to make movies. His professional career in information technology gave him the skills, but not necessarily the outlet to pursue that desire. With the death of Jonathan Harris in 2002, the possibility of a live-action reprise of Lost in Space that featured the original cast members seemed to slip away forever. It was that event that sparked a new idea in Phil's mind, a CG animated episode of classic Lost in Space using the voices of surviving cast members. Why not, he asked. Well, the rest is history. We're going to speak with Mr. Hamilton today about his love for Lost in Space, his life of being a super fan of the series, and dig deeper into his incredible 3D CG animated movies. I hope you will enjoy this compelling interview with talented Lost in Space CG animated filmmaker and series enthusiast, Mr. Phil Hamilton. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mr. Phil Hamilton, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. 
Well, Lane, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you. I've been listening to your podcast and have really enjoyed uh, what I've heard so far. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been enjoying your work, and I'm going to get into that. But first, I want to tell the audience, I had the pleasure of meeting you in person for the first time at the 2018 Wonderfest convention in Louisville, and that was a real treat. You were there with the B9 Robot Builders Club. That was my first experience with something like that, but it was fortunate that I got to meet you because in the meantime, you've helped me and our podcast out in multiple ways. You've given me uh, access to your rare photo collection, the sound effects, which I'm enjoying getting to use now in some of the episodes, and also your detailed knowledge of the series. So thank you, sir. You are welcome. Very welcome. Now, we're going to talk in detail about your films. Before we get into that, I want to start out where I do with all the guests, and that's at the beginning. Can you tell me how you were first exposed to Lost in Space? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in the 60s, and uh, I was born in 57, so most of my formative years were probably from ages 3 to 13, and of course, you know, imaginations run wild during that time. Also, I'd like to point out that during that time, there was a huge, I would say, monster craze where, it, you know, the they call us monster kids, and we grew up with a lot of exposure, you know, to the Aurora models, mm. the uh, old Universal horror movies on TV, and so uh, naturally, anything that was a little bit supernatural or science fiction or anything like that, I was gravitating right towards it at that age. I remember watching them, being scared of them. the ants that were on there. I remember The Wizard of Oz scared me, but uh, mostly I just liked horror and science fiction, and it was funny. My older brother. Could have cared less about it. So I don't know why we're different in that, that way, but there's just things he just doesn't care about. But to me, I glommed right onto it. Mm. So naturally, in the, the uh, fall of 1965, and I think even in the summer, they were showing previews of this show coming out called Lost in Space. And, you know, you would see, you know, the Jupiter 2, you would see perhaps the Cyclops in the, the previews. And I thought, man, that's a show I've got to see. So naturally, in September of 1965, it came out. And it's funny, my best memories of Lost in Space were the original episode when they, the reluctant stowaway. I remember specifically the one of our dogs is missing because I remember drawing that crater monster. And I, I thought that that was really cool to have a monster coming out of a crater. And I guess it scared me. It just stuck in my mind. There were other episodes that also did. Uh, but the other big one was uh, Return to Earth which is my absolute favorite season one Lost in Space episode. And I guess, you know, that particular episode, everybody kind of, you know, identify with somebody who's not believing you. You know, you're telling them something. It does sound fantastic, but they don't believe you. And you sit there and you really feel for Will Robinson. And Bill Mooney gives an excellent performance, a lot of empathy. It's just one of my all-time favorite first season episodes. And I'll tell you the other thing about Lost in Space. I remember being in second grade when this came out. I remember asking my mother, Mom, I've got to have a, a you know Will Robinson shirt. Mm. And she went out and she found me a purple velour shirt. that had a zipper in the front, the little collar that turned back. And you could actually zip it up and fold it down like a turtleneck, or you could unzip it and have a little bit of your neck showing or whatever. I remember wearing that to school, thinking, man, I'm Will Robinson. This is the coolest thing. And so that, that first season of Lost in Space, I'm, I'm telling you, my imagination was captured. Uh, I watched it. I, I just I loved it. It was, it was just great. Oh, man. Well, it sounds like we could have been best friends if we'd known each other back in that time, because I had the <laughs> Probably. Ex 
Yeah, I had the exact same interests. I loved all those old universal horror movies and the giant monster movies from the 50s. And then Lost in Space sort of touched that and also the sci-fi interest as well. So that's very cool. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd like to add that I remember watching the show in the first season, and I remember when it went to the second season, and I think by that time we got a color TV, and the colors really popped. I remember that, but unfortunately, the stories were just, they were not so much. You would watch them, and you go, eh. It got real campy, as everybody knows, in season two, but even as a nine-year-old child, I could figure out that that campiness was not really what I liked. I liked that first season a lot. And then in season three, it improved. It got a little more adventurous. But I do remember that as a kid thinking, this isn't the kind of have-to-watch show every week. I'll watch it, but you know, I, I really want more monsters. I want more believability because that first season was so good. It was. It was. Same here, got to confess. Although I have only the vaguest memories of watching it when it was still being broadcast. I was a, what would you call that, a syndication kid for the most part. But mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. I feel the same way about these seasons that you do. Well, let me ask you this, Phil. Were you creative or artistic as a child? Did you have any interests in that area? Yes, I did. I remember I used to draw. My dad would sometimes sit down with me and draw. And I remember thinking, you know, he can draw pretty good. I wonder if I can copy that. And then I found out that it was very easy to copy what it was that he drew. And so I think at an early age, I started realizing I had a knack for drawing. And one of the first things I remembered, they used to have show and tell in first grade. Mm. I figured out how to draw a haunted house using orange and black Crayola. And the orange was the, the sun reflection on the black roof. I remember this vividly. And I also remember being able to draw in perspective at a very early age where you would you know, draw things that looked like it was a little more in 3D as opposed to a flat 2D figure. Uh-huh. And I couldn't figure out why the other kids, most of them, didn't seem to do that. I just picked up on that perspective thing real early. The other thing I'd point out, I remember my dad was helping me with one of those carnivals at school. The parents were sponsors of certain rooms, and I remember we were. Uh, my parents were sponsored of the Go Fish Room. This is usually the, the yearly Halloween carnival. Oh, and yeah. he had to draw a big old fish, and he had to draw a hook, and he did all this stuff. And I remember coloring that in and helping him draw that. And, in fact, I was going through some things the other day, some early artwork. And, by golly, I pulled out a picture of a bass and a catfish that I had drawn. And it was, you know, it's pretty crude, but, you know, for what? second grade it was okay and it reminded me of that go fish thing you know this is you know class 2a go fish you know that kind of thing so (laughs) i do remember it absolutely oh that's great it's fun to come across some of those things that you've had stored away in a baby book or in a box Mm -hmm. somewhere for years isn't it (laughs) yes it is we call them artifacts of the childhood yes Yes. Well, now, what about, uh, were you into like building models later on or were there any? Oh, yes. Yes. Remember, I told you about the monster craze of the 60s. So naturally, you know, what I do, I built all the Aurora models. Uh, I had, you know, the Frankenstein Dracula mummy. I mean, you know, I didn't paint them very well, I don't think. As an adult, I actually went out and bought some repros and painted them. I was much better. But as a kid, you know, putting together a model was always a lot of fun. Uh, one of the, the strangest things was, is I remember the Lost in Space being out thinking, where are the models for Lost in Space? They've got to have a Jupiter 2, and there wasn't one. Mm. I did finally get a um, $0.98 cent from TGNY. This had been about 1968. It was the Lost in Space robot, you know, where he's standing on a little mound of Earth and he's shooting a ray out of his claw. Yes. That was a great model. Anyway, the other thing I did also was I played around flip books. I don't know if you know what that is, but... What you would do is you would draw an image, and I usually started out with stick figures, and I would animate them, and you'd flip them on the edge of like a tablet or something, and you would make a little story, you know, where 
two figures are running along. One shoots the other one, he blows up or whatever. And you just did this in pencil. But it was my earliest efforts at animation. But I remember doing these little flip books. And I still have some around uh, that I've been looking for, but I remember them. Uh, That was always a lot of fun. Oh, that's cool. I think I did some of that as well, but probably not as sophisticated as you did it. Yeah, well, I wasn't too sophisticated then earlier, and I'll tell you why. Because if you drew a lot of detail back then, then the next page or the next frame, you had to draw the same detail over and over again. So I started out with stick figures. So that was easy to replicate page by page by page. So Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. So when you were growing up and everything, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you did become an adult? Uh-oh. Oh, well, <laughs> again, I, I said I liked science fiction. I liked horror. I liked monsters. And I liked monster makeup, which is why I'm lost in space. If you saw anytime they had a, a good makeup there, I, I really liked it. And I always wondered, how did they do that? So I naturally went out and bought this magazine back in the mid-60s. It was called Dick Smith's Makeup Hand Guide. It was from Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I used to read that magazine as well. But it explained how to do makeup and to make monster makeup. And I remember my friends said, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on some makeup. And of course, I got kidded about that. But I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is like monster makeup. So back then, what I wanted to do was use my artistic talents and do special effects and makeup. But unfortunately, you know, back in the 60s, it's like, well, how do you get to do this? There weren't really any schools for it. And if they were, they probably were in Hollywood. Well, that was out growing up in Texas. So I had to find, you know, obviously different work, but I definitely had an interest in doing the makeup. And I remember taking in ninth grade a test to see what my interests were. And I scored the highest on art and mechanical and whatever that means. But I remember looking at the different professions out there, and I thought, well, where's the makeup artist? But, you know, if you think about it, art and mechanical, I mean, building prosthetics and doing that, you can see where maybe that would be in there. And I remember I even was a huge fan of Planet of the Apes and, mm. and how they did those masks and how they made it look so realistic. And I even I took one of those stupid styrofoam heads and you put a wig on. Mm-hmm. I put clay on it and built a brow and a nose and a bottom chin piece like a Planet of the Apes. And then I went and bought latex, liquid latex, colored with my mom's flesh-colored liquid makeup, I guess is what it was. She said, yeah, you can have that. So I dumped it in the liquid latex, which was white, and it colored it flesh. And I thought, wow, this is cool. So I made an appliance. And I was about 13 years old when I did that, and I still got the pictures of me in my gorilla costume for Halloween, uh, ah. your gorilla Planet of the Apes costume, and uh, and it looks pretty doggone good. I I was impressed at how well it turned out. I mean, I, I used to hound my father to take me down to Magic Land in downtown Dallas, where they sold all the magic things related to makeup. I mean, they had like crepe hair, they had grease paint, they had spirit gum, they had all the things that you would need because it's not available anywhere else. You can't just go to the drugstore and buy it. So all that stuff was there, and I would buy it, bring it home, and you know, basically try to figure out what's the next makeup that I want to do. But you know, once again, as I started thinking, I thought, you know, how am I going to become something like this? And it really wasn't a possibility. I did during that time also collect a lot of eight millimeter movies, and what I mean by that is they used to have these headline, these little fifty foot reels and two hundred foot reels of all your favorite horror movies or you know comedies or whatever. I spent hours lane watching these things over and over again showing them on the wall of my bedroom and my buddies and i would take a reel-to-reel tape recorder and we would sit down 
and actually cover their own soundtracks to these silent eight millimeter movies. Oh. So I would have the creature from the Black Lagoon on the wall, but it would have my own special soundtrack to it. And I remember one of them, we actually, you're not going to believe this, we had a record player and it used a microphone and a little, we had individual songs and we would actually play songs at certain points and record them. And we would sit there for hours laughing at kind of an early version of a music video, I guess, because the song would come in at a certain point of the show or the film, which is no more than eight minutes long. And it was just funny. So that's what we used to do with that reel to reel. I would love to have those reel to reels today. You know, just the you know what kind I'm talking about. Oh yeah. And I, you know, we spent hours. These weren't cassettes, and they were little tiny little fifty foot rolls of you know brown tape, and mm-hmm. we would we would have a ball. So again, I always wanted to create movies, and I liked the magic of the movies and the fact that you couldn't uh, understand until you could kind of get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, as to how these things were made. And in fact. I remember when they used to show like the Saturday night movie or the Friday night movie or the Sunday night movie, back then they would run the whole movie. And a lot of times there would be like 15 or 10, you know, they wouldn't fill it up with commercials. There'd be like maybe 10 or 15 minutes left over after the movie. And I remember they used to show these featurettes, the movies and, you know, the movie makers or how to make, how they made such and such movie. And there were featurettes that were made at the time these movies were filmed in the sixties. I remember watching those and I enjoyed those more than the actual movie because it would show you things that you didn't normally see. To me, that's just understanding a magic trick, which all that was very uh, important to me as I was growing up and in my earlier age and in my teen years. Well, this was all training at an early age, Phil. Yes, some of the, yes I think so. For some of the stuff you're doing now, exactly. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got that picture of you and your Planet of the Apes makeup, you've got to post that online because that sounds great. <laughs> Yes, I will do so. In fact, one of my projects that I'm working on now is I have this scan project, which I've got to sit down and scan all these old pictures in because I am going to post some of them. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I'm working on some eBay stuff now, but that's going to be my next big project. I'll be waiting to see that. So you wanted to get into doing movies and the technical and the behind the scenes stuff, but life took you in a different direction. What did you wind up doing? Well, it all came down to how am I going to make a buck? Okay. So, you know, obviously you have your passion and if you're lucky, if you're really, really lucky, you get to do the passion and make money, you know, doing your passion and enjoying it and you're making an income off of it. But that's not for everybody. And sometimes that's not an option. So I was very good at math. I was a good student. I made, you know, good grades. And I remember that we had a neighbor who had gone to work for mobile oil being a programmer. Her parents told my parents, well, you know, that's something that Phil could do. So I didn't know. I was just trying to get out of high school. So I thought, okay, well, I took a class at Richland Junior College here in Dallas, a little junior college. I wanted to go there a year before I went off to, you know, a four-year university. So I tried programming class, COBOL. I liked it. It made sense to me. Uh, It was logical. I've been accused of being way too logical sometimes. So I kind of have this battle going on in my mind between left brain and right brain a lot of the time. But I could sit down and actually create a program, and I had my way of doing it, and I liked it. So long story short, I went to East Texas State University. They had a very good computer science degree at that point in time, and this was about uh, 1975-ish after I graduated from high school. And they had one of the top ones in the nation. And so that's what I did, and I came out, you know, making a pretty good living. So my career took off. And I got into information technology and information technology management. And that's what carried me throughout my entire 
career over several different companies, ended up retiring uh, in late 2014 from that. So presently I'm retired. And so I have projects at home that I work on and it's afforded me to do my films. Uh, I have a little more time to do that. And so I'm kind of playing out my younger fantasy. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Because now mm-hmm. you've got the time, but I'm sure the information technology background didn't hurt when you started getting into the CGI stuff. So that's pretty cool. Not at all. No, I understood programs. I was very uh, adept at quickly picking it up. Yes, I'd have to go through some of the tutorials, but I understood it. I just it just made sense to me. So it was, it was pretty. So once again, artistic and mechanical. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Back to that test that I took in ninth grade. Well, let's circle back around to Lost in Space because where we left off sure. last, we you watched it in original broadcast, and then Lost in Space mm-hmm. goes off the air. Were you still kind of catching up with it when it was in syndication, and or did you? Oh, absolutely! Of- I, uh, no, absolutely, I did. And as a matter of fact, I remember watching it on the UHF local channel back then. I don't know if people realize this. Of course, people listening to this broadcast might remember this: is that the UHF channels didn't really come in very well. You had to have a really good antenna for it. And most of the time, everything you were watching is fuzzy. And I remember watching season three syndication repeats of Lost in Space, probably in the early 70s. We'd come on in the afternoon, and I'd watch it, and it was fuzzy. And we had a color TV, still that same color TV that we still had back in 1966. It was one of those consoles, you know, from Sears. I remember watching it, and it was kind of fuzzy, but it was like the color would kind of come in and out because the, the, the antenna wasn't very good, you know, mm. because it was season three, and it was in color. But I remember watching these things, and, you know, that's how I, I revisited all my favorite episodes. And I always thought it was cool when they always started back over with reluctant stowaway, I'd say, okay, now we're going to start season one again. These are the best ones. And then I could, you know, ride those on through. But yeah, I watched it throughout the years, you know, after the original run. So the interest in Lost in Space never really left you, but... No, I'd always had it. I mean, granted, you know, as you get older, you know, you go to college, you know, maybe the shows, the TV stations where you were, they weren't showing it. So yes, I didn't watch it as much probably in my early 20s. But it, what happened was, is that as time got on and I got in my career and, you know, beginning, obviously you have other interests and you kind of went, you know, move away from some of that. Although my interest in space, science fiction and monsters never went away, mm. but I always had this love for Lost in Space. And what had happened was by the time 1990 rolled around, I was married. I had a kid that was three years old. Uh, he was born in 87. He started, you know, getting into toys. And of course, you know, as a father, you're sitting there and you start telling your child stories about how you had toys and the toys that you had. And then I got to thinking, you know, there's some of these toys that I can probably, I wonder if I could find these old antique toys or the toys that I wish that I'd had, you know, the Rimco Lost in Space robot, which I always wanted, but I never had. Mm. And, you know, at this point, this is before eBay. And so I went through this period of doing this kind of toy collecting. And then I thought, you know, I haven't built a model in years. And so then I started started building models. So in the early 90s, I started really getting into that. And I noticed there was this magazine called StarTech. What they had in there were these little things called comet miniatures. They were like made of tin or not lead, but they were very heavy. They were like miniature spaceships of the X-Wing fighter or, you know, Star Wars spaceships. And then I saw in there a little sea view. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And then there was a little tiny Jupiter too. Now, Lane, these things weren't more than probably an inch and a half to two inches in diameter. But by golly, it was the model 
and you could take it, you could glue it with super glue, glue the landing gear on, you could paint it. And I still have all these in a cabinet in my house. And I collected all these Comet miniatures. And I thought, this is cool. I'm really having a lot of fun doing these little models. Um, and I learned how to dry brush. I learned how to put more detail. I was actually a lot better than I was when I was you know, 10. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed all of that. At the same time, there was a company called Lunar Models. And Lunar mm-hmm. Models was actually based for a while in Rowlett, Texas, which is east of Dallas. They had a you know, a 16 and a half inch Jupiter two. And that at the time was the only large Jupiter two you could get. And there was this guy that ran it. I think it was Mike Evans that ran it. You know, they were resin, they had vacuum form and you could actually do these models that looked really good. And I'll never forget. I finally broke down and these were not cheap. And I broke down and bought the Jupiter two, but I will say that I remember doing that and building this Jupiter two up and it was like the pride and joy of my collection because this is before anything with polar lights or Mobius or any of that stuff came out. I mean, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is great. You know, mm-hmm. you've actually are able to build something from Lost in Space. That's wild. And, of course, it was really filling a need out there because we had gotten denied those Jupiter 2 models back in the day. But now Lunar Models comes out with this stuff, and that had to be exciting. It, you know, that was. And because now I could actually buy something that was related to Lost in Space. And if you fast forward a little bit, and as my toy collecting went, they had a big D super collectible show in 1997. I remember it was in Dallas, and that's back when they used to have these shows before people decided it was just easier to advertise toys over the Internet. I miss it a lot because you go there and you could look at these vintage toys. and It was a lot of fun to kind of put your hands on them and everything. You could find something you're looking for, whatever. But I was going to one of these shows, and they always liked to have a celebrity there. I remember walking by this aisle, and I, I looked over at the table, and I looked, and it said, you know, had a big sign behind the table that said Jonathan Harris. I went, holy moly, that's Dr. Smith. So, man, I hightail it right over there to him, and there was nobody at his table. Uh, mm. You know, maybe one person came up, but it wasn't like there was a line. I walked over to him. I started talking. I bought a picture. There's a good picture of him inside the Jupiter 2, which is – a season one color photo with him and Bill Mooney sitting there. And it's, it's a great color shot of it. And he signed it and everything. And he talked to me and, and I said, you know, how's your back? And, he, and you know, he would do his Dr. Smith voice. Oh, my back, you know, he was just, he was very gracious, very nice. He didn't mind anything, but it was really funny at one time. I have a tendency to talk a lot, as you probably can tell. And he looked at me and he says, you know what? He goes, I'm enjoying talking to you. He goes, but I need to sell some autographs. And I laughed. I said, I'll come back or something. And he goes, oh, no, before you go. And he, he pointed at that picture that he signed. And he pointed to Bill Newman and he said, that kid can act. And mm. I said, oh, yeah, really? And he goes, yes, he's the best. You know, mm. and, and it was just funny. I didn't ask him about the picture. I didn't. He did, but he offered that. It was just really exciting for me. And I thought, I don't care if I see Toy One. The rest of the day, I've met Dr. Smith. That was a highlight. And I did ask him about the movie that was coming out the following April in 98. I asked him about it, and he just kind of shook his head, and he said if he wasn't going to be in it uh, as Dr. Smith, he wasn't going to be in it. You know, that was it. And um, just didn't have much to say. And we've heard those stories. You know, he wanted to play Dr. Smith. And there was no other role for him. No. Uh, but he was quite a character, bigger than life. That's what everybody says. Man, I'm jealous. I mm-hmm. never got to meet Jonathan Harris. So you ne- yeah. You better be very, very glad about that, sir. That's awesome. I am very glad about it. It was uh, one of the highlights of meeting uh, you know, the entire cast. But he, just, he takes the cake. He just has this personality, and he's really funny. Bigger than life. Bigger than life. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it wasn't too long after that, I understand, that you got involved with the B9 Robot Builders Club. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely, yes. And funny you should say that. About a year later, you know, the Lost in Space movie came out. I took my kids, my family to it, and I remember just kind of scratching my head as I left, as I think a lot of people did, thinking, I think they lost an opportunity here. Uh, it just, the story just wasn't it. And, you know, it started off, you know, okay. And then it went into the time travel issues and nobody liked it. I mean, all, people just said, eh, you know, it just really wasn't that good. But I tended to collect movies. I had a lot of DVDs as they began to come out. And as soon as that thing was released on DVD, I bought one. And in the very back of that DVD package and slipcase, they had an ad in there. And it was a picture of a lost in space robot. There was also a picture of Bob May, and I went, wow, there's, there's a Lost in Space robot you can buy. When I saw his picture in the back of that DVD package, I thought, oh, my gosh, you can actually buy this, and it said icons. And so I looked at it, and, and so I started selling a bunch of my toys to be able to afford the $7,000 price or whatever it was mm. that they wanted for this thing. And I decided that I was going to buy this thing. Well, long story short, Icons went out of business. Uh, I got my money back. I was one of the few lucky that did because I had charged it, and I was able to push the charge back, and they reversed it. I got my money back, and I decided, I think I can build one of these myself because someone had emailed me and said, said have you ever heard of the B9 Builders Club? Well, no, I hadn't heard of that. And they sent me a link, and I went to this website, and by golly, you could buy like the bottom tread section, you could buy all the pieces, you could build this thing yourself. So naturally, Lane, I thought, I build models, I have no trouble building model, this is a bigger scale, but it's just a model, why can't I do this? Mm. So that's when I first got into the B9 Builders Club and began collecting parts to build my robot. Wow. Well, take us through the journey of building it. How long did it take? Okay. What kind of robot was it? So forth. Sure, sure. Yeah, so the first question you, you kind of ask yourself is, okay, how much of this can I... So since I'd sold the toys, I'd kind of built up a little uh, little fund of things that I could go out and buy. And I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have to buy the torso, and I'm going to have to buy the legs and the knees, and I'm going to have to buy something that makes it look like the robot, you know, and I, and so I can kind of get my hands around the fact that I'm really doing this thing. And so in 1999, I started this process, and I remember the first day that the parts begin to arrive. And I thought, well, I got to go out in the garage. I've got to set up a workshop. I've got to have a place to sand, to paint, to drill, to solder, to connect wires, to do whatever. And so this process started, I just started acquiring parts. And the first part I acquired for the tread section was made out of wood. And a lot of them at that time were, they didn't have the steel tread section. So the aluminum tread sections that they have now, they were just made out of wood. But if you sanded it and painted it properly, it looked like metal. It, it was not a problem. You, you couldn't tell the difference. Nobody would know the difference but you. Hmm. And, of course, that's also one of the problems. As a builder, and any B9 robot builder will tell you this, they'll know, A, all the imperfections on there, and, B, all the things they want to do to improve it because they know where all the little, little warts are. They just know. And that's the way I was. And so I went to my first convention for the B9 Builders Club in 2000, and I met Craig Reinbrecht there, and you've had him on the show. And that was the first time we met. We were talking about that just the other day about how, you know, we met for breakfast that day. I didn't know him very well, but mm. we knew we were both B9 builders. We sat down, and he had a pair of radar ears that he had made, and he was going to present these to Bob May. 
And I remember looking at those things, I go, this is really cool. By then, I'd already kind of had a draft version of my robot built. And I kind of built it in record speed because once I decided to do something, I was just going to do it. So parts were flying and they were coming in, you know, fast and furious. And I finally got my first buildup done by the end of 99, early 2000. And so, you know, I'd kind of been through it by the time that convention came around that spring and spring of 2000 at Fright Vision. I'll never forget the first time that I hooked up the neon and actually had the voices, Dick Tufeld voices that had been recorded off the series play through this thing in my garage with the neon flashing. Mm. And I was just then, you know, telling my wife, you got to come see this. Of course, obviously she wasn't as interested as I was, <laughs> but she came down there and go, yeah, that's pretty cool. The funny thing was I always had the garage door open. It was hot. You know, Texas summers are hot. And I was out in the garage working on this thing and people were coming by you know, walking down the alley with their dogs. And they'd look in there and they'd see the torso of this robot. This one guy comes walking by, and it's one of our neighbors. And it turns out that it was Charlie Waters who used to play for the Dallas Cowboys. He lived in our neighborhood at the time. He was a safety back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he comes by and he looks in there and he says, is that a Lost in Space robot? <laughs> he recognized it. And I said, as a matter of fact, it is. And it didn't have the head on yet, but it had. you could see the torso. When you see that torso and the legs, you know, as it's stacked there, you know, you can tell what it's going to be. It was quite the, the experience over about three or four years where I got tired of the wooden tread section. So I said, well, oh, there's a guy that offers aluminum ones. Well, he just started and said he had four sets of them. They're ready to go. I said, give me one of those. And so I bought one of those. Then I sold my tread section to somebody else that was just starting out. And so there's this period of upgrades that you go through. And most builders will tell you a B9 robot is never done because there's always something you can add to it. At the end, what I had was a robot that was more of a statue. Uh, it did turn at the waist. It turned at the collar. The uh, lights blinked up, the crown motor moved, the ears moved, which, by the way, is more than the original robot did. I mean, after the first few episodes, they turned all that off, and all I did was blink because apparently that maybe it was too noisy or something. But I think I was able to pull the arms in and out. They were rubber. The legs were not rubber. The legs were actually cast off the mold that was made for the long-distance robot, as I understand it. They're a little bit higher. I didn't like them. I preferred to have the rubber legs and the more of a squished look, but I couldn't afford to do that at the time. And and that's pretty much how he stayed, you know, for years and years and years. Like I said, I would occasionally upgrade some things. I remember tearing out the guts and actually restacking everything on the inside so that it was easier to take apart and uh, put back together. I'm labeling the wires and, you know, doing things like that. But it looked pretty good. I enjoyed it. And, of course, all my friends in the neighborhood would come by and they go, oh, yeah, the Lost in Space robot. And they'd always ask the dreaded question. After I turned it on, it played a few phrases and it blinked. They looked at it and said, what else does it do? <laughs> I said, well, what I else? It, it, what looks else? Pretty, yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I always wanted to be real Robinson. So I've got a robot. And everybody thought it was kind of neat. But everybody, I mean, without failing, would say, what else does it do? Yeah. And I had to say, well, not much, you know, but it's fine with me. You know, I'm fine with the way that it is. It makes so me happy. What's right? It makes yes, me happy. exactly. <laughs> it, I, I have the thing. I mean, I have something not many people have. I had a blast building it. I'm a huge Lost in Space fan. And it was funny. Some people in the neighborhood were Lost in Space fans, too. And they glommed onto it a little bit more. They asked me a little bit more about it. You could tell who was the fan and who wasn't the fan. You know, these are people that are generally my age, but not everybody, you know, liked it as much as I did. But, you know, but I remember some of the wives would say, I remember the show and I, you know, I just can't believe you have this. This is the coolest thing. And that made me feel good. It made me feel like, hey, you know, maybe all of my efforts are not, you know, for naught. You know, I'm actually 
some people are impressed with this, but ultimately it had to impress me, and it did, and I thoroughly enjoyed having that robot. It was a lot of fun. They are impressive, and I tell everybody mm-hmm. that I talk to, if you've never seen one in person, you definitely got to go experience it, because you can't believe what it's like to see one in the flesh. Now, was yours painted first season or second season? It was actually painted second season because I just, I, I liked the colors. I, I just thought that was really cool. And uh, I liked the red claws. Uh, so I went the second, third season look as opposed to the kind of the monochrome look in the first season. Now, since then, a couple of three years ago, I sold the robot. I came to a point where I thought, you know, I was kind of in a downsizing mode and I decided to sell it. It was kind of painful, but I did. And I only tell you this because... I also had one of the last upgrades I had, I had Dick Tufeld record lines for me that were customized for me and my kids. You know, he would say their names, you know, Justin and Jordan are lost in space, or he would talk about me, you know, Master Robot Builder Phil Hamilton. And, and I had all these lines done. To me, that was kind of the crowning achievement of the entire build was to have the actual voice. And people were extremely impressed with that. They thought, you got the guy that actually did the voice to do this? I said, yeah. You know, unfortunately, he passed away, but this was done before he passed away. And he would offer lines to the club. We had somebody who would then run them through a little bit of a filter and make them sound a little bit more robotic. But anyway, when I sold it, my kids said, couldn't believe I sold my robot. And But then the next time they said, well, what about the lines? Like, oh, I got the lines on a recorder. I said, you know, on a CD, I, I always have those. And I said, in fact, I built one of the Mobius B9 robots, you know, the little mm-hmm. foot high ones. Mm-hmm. And I installed a sound chip in there. And now all the sounds that were in my large robot are in my small robot. Cool. And so I said, oh, they're still here. Don't worry. You can turn it on. You can hear all your lines. You hear your name and a whole bit. But now what's happened after about, you know, two or three years passed by, you know, and still going to these conventions and seeing my buddies that I've known over the years and thing and seeing things, I'm thinking, I want a first season robot. And, mm. and of course, you know, they laugh at me and they go, well, you know, get your wallet out and start trying to figure out how you're going to do that. And of course, since being retired and downsizing, I have a hard time getting my head around, gosh, is this something I want to do again or not? And what I decided was I want to buy it to where maybe all the parts are just ready to go and you just plug and play. I, I know how to do it. I just don't want to do it. I just want it. Maybe I don't have to assemble the whole thing, but maybe I get an already painted torso or whatever. And all i got to do is just plug the lights in and do the, that kind of stuff. And I already decided that I would not have the exact same upgrades on it that I did before. For example, I don't care if the crown turns. I don't care if the ears turn. Why? Because it never turned on the show except for a very few episodes. So I was going to try to make it as a season one, silver claws, more monochrome looking. I, that's what I, I want to do. haven't done it yet, but it is a potential thing that I will do. Well, you're going to have to carve out some time for that, Phil, because you're a busy man right now. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Lost in Space 3D animated filmmaker, series expert, and superfan, Phil Hamilton, as much as I am. The thing I admire about Phil is he's found a fabulous way of combining his passion for Lost in Space with his lifelong desire to make movies. He's got more to share about his CG filmmaking, his experiences with Lost in Space, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space movie maker, Phil Hamilton. It's a nice segue to my next subject. I want to get into your latest creative efforts with 3D Uh computer graphic animation. How did you get into that? And why did you think it would be interesting? Well, you know... When you think back about 
and what I'd mentioned before about always wanting to be a movie maker. I've always wanted to make movies. I always thought that would be really cool. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind. And then one of my friends through the B9 Builders Club told me about this Microsoft flight simulator software, which I had heard of, but I figured you just fly in a Cessna around. He said, oh, no, no. He said, if you go to this site, Pendercrafts, it was a group that did this, they created a Jupiter 2 that you could fly. You land on runways, you could fly it all over the United States in Microsoft Flight Simulator. It was a little crude, you know, it wasn't as highly detailed as maybe some of my later renders were, but it was something I'd never seen before. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. And uh, I still had my robot at the time. And I had a green screen that I could film my robot in front of. In fact, I did actually film the robot in front of a green screen. I said, you know, now I've got some scenes of the robot in front of the green screen doing various different things. Well, you know, maybe I can put that into, a, you know, one of these little editors, little Sony Vegas movie editor software packages, and I can create something with it. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then YouTube was beginning to get a little bit popular back then. And I saw people doing their own videos and things at this time. Mm. So anyway, I got the flight simulator. And I realized that, hey, I could do something with the robot over in, in one scene and I can make it look like it's on the deck of the Jupiter 2 if I film it in front of the green screen, which I did. And then I just used the backdrops and still shots of the things that the Pendercrafts people had done in Microsoft Flight Simulator. So I took that and I even contacted them and asked them if they could create a release that would basically create a, a large green screen within the software so I could actually fly their Jupiter 2 model in front of that green screen so I could chroma image it out. And what you do is you just select on the green and you say, get rid of all green. That's how they do mad shots today in movies. When people are filming in front of a blue screen, they chroma key out the blue or the green screen, they chroma key out the green. It's done on weather forecasts. It's done everywhere. And I've never done this before, but I thought this was really cool. So I decided to could I make a little movie, you know, just show the Jupiter 2 landing near my neighborhood or something? So I went out in my front yard and I filmed around my house. Then I took the Jupiter 2 and chroma keyed out the green and made it look like it was landing in the field across my house. I made this little tiny video that is probably more, more than two minutes, if anything. I posted it online back in 2007 and I thought, well, this is kind of neat. And so it's, it's very crude, it's, it, but it was just kind of practice, if you will. I'd never done this before. I didn't know really what to expect. And it, it's on my YouTube channel still. Mm -hmm. That was the first one I did. And I put it out there and I go, well, it's crude, but at the same time, it's fun. And maybe someone will get a laugh out of watching it. And so then I thought, hmm, I need to have another story. I need to figure out what happens to it after that. And so I proceeded to create three or four of these little short films using the, the Pendercraft software, using green screen robot. And then, of course, I'd put some you know, sound effects from Lost in Space, as well as a little music effects from Johnny Williams in there. It looked like a little Lost in Space thing. Wow. Well, that's what I started with. And then during that time, and this is before I created the last episode called The Curse of Dr. Smith, <laughs> which is really bad. But what it was is I worked for an advertising agency in IT supporting artistic and creative people. So I was very well at home, knew a lot of the artists. And one guy showed me this package called Poser. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, you can animate with this. And I said, you could do what? And he says, yeah, you can animate with it. You can create your own characters. And I go, you can create your own characters, really? So I started doing some little searches on the internet, and I found this guy. And his name was Steve Armstrong. I guess his name is still that today. And he had put some things out online that you could just download for free. 
and they were essentially his texture patterns on the already available clothes within Posa that you could put on these characters, but you could make something look like a John Robinson or a Will Robinson or, you know, a Dr. Smith just by using the texture patterns to make it look like their tunics and their pants. But the faces didn't really look correct. They were choosing the standard models out of Poser, and they would change the hair around so the hair would look more like the character. But that was pretty much it. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, so let me see what I can do. So night after night, I would just kind of go through this thing and teach it to myself. And I thought, I want to create a Dr. Smith. And within Poser, they have something called the face room. And you can go in there, and you can lay in a front image and a side image of the person you're wanting to create. And you can kind of create a crude rendition of that particular person's face. You could look at it and say, okay, that's Dr. Smith. But I look at it now, and I go, that's pretty bad. But it was an early effort. But I wanted to see, could I create a Dr. Smith? Could I make him talk? using Jonathan Harris lines from Lost in Space, and can I make it walk like Dr. Smith? You know, his little hands are together and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So in the very last episode I did of those first four, I actually had the Dr. Smith character in there, and people were saying, well, look, he's walking like Jonathan Harris. And I thought, well, this is cool. It wasn't even hard to do because you can animate this with Imposer because it's a fully functional model in 3D that you can move and pose the arms and legs, you know, and you can even make the mouth move and expressions on the face. And I thought, if I can do all that, it's a question then of becoming kind of like a Ray Harryhausen where you have a model, you know, in the old days, they'd, you know, take the dinosaur and they'd move it a little bit and they'd take a picture and they'd move it a little bit more and take it another picture like stop motion animation. Well, in this software, you could say, okay, from frame one to 20, I want this to happen. And then it would just fluidly keyframe right through that and fill in all the in-betweens and you know exactly what you needed to do. And then is once you created the animation, you'd say, well, how do I want this to look? Well, I can write it out as a movie file Or, better yet, you could write it out as images, individual images that then you drop into your editor and you say, okay, I'm going to run this at 24 frames per second. So essentially what you're doing is you're rendering frame by frame by frame. And it's like a cartoon in a way. If you think about the way animation, you know, sells and the way they did Bugs Bunny and everything, they would animate every single frame and they had like a background it was on and they'd play it back and you play it back, you get the movement and, you know, the rest is history. You've got an animation. And it took a lot of time, a lot of research on the Internet. And I was all self-taught. I had no professional training at all. I just had to go find how-to videos. And back when I started this, there weren't very many. I had to just do a lot of trial and error. And some people that have tried this since and asked me, how did I learn to do it? And they said, well, where were you taught? And I go, well, it was trial and error. And, and I just had to kind of keep playing with it till I felt the movements were more fluid and they looked more realistic. And you can see this through my videos. I mean, they're very choppy early on. You know, even in my most recent one, there's things I'm not pleased with, but at least it's a lot better than what I did before. That's where it started back in 2007. Okay, now I have to create all the characters of Lost in Space. So then I started playing around more at the face room and I started trying to make the characters look a little bit more like the actual actors that were on the show. Oh, and in the meantime, someone gave me a 3D model to Jupiter 2. So out with Microsoft Simulator, I no longer use that. Now I could have a a full 3D model of the Jupiter 2 that my characters could actually interact in and move around in. Mm -hmm. And then it was a question of creating planetscapes. Okay, well, what else do I need? Plants. 
And these, a lot of this stuff is free for the downloading on the internet, believe it or not. The Lost of Space Robot was a already rigged poser figure that was available free of charge. They said, you know, don't use it for commercial use, but you can certainly download it and play with it and do whatever you want to do with it. So that's what I did. And I found a chariot model that really needed a lot of cleanup. I had to go into an actual 3D program and, and get rid of a lot of problems with the model, make it look more realistic. And if you looked at it real close, you would notice this. Of course, I have a very detailed mind, and so I'd get in there and just start basically cleaning those models up. I ended up creating my own jetpack. And uh, again, it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of work playing on lighting and how you rendered it and how you used butt maps. And of course, that basically creates textures and bumps on things. And there's just a lot of things that you can do with it. At this point in time, I recalled thinking that if I had voices of the actual actors or even people that would kind of sound like them or just any voice talent, you could create your own Lost in Space show. Back in 2004, I was at Schiller. This is after Jonathan Harrison passed away. The option of doing the NBC movie, they had already got ready to go into production, and he passed away. And Mark Goddard was at this particular convention at Schiller in 2004. And I asked him, had there been any consideration, given the fact that the cast is still alive, that you couldn't animate this? And this was back in the early days of a lot of CG characters where they all started looking a little bit more realistic. He said that he had heard discussions of this, but he didn't know if it was going to you know, ever be done. But he goes, yeah, that would be something that would be interesting if you could do that. Of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Lane, well, gee, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should be the one. I mean, if they're not going to do it, maybe I should do it. So all this was in the back of my mind as I learned Poser, as I began to play around with it and develop these characters. And I just started trying to figure out, well, what do I do? So that's kind of how it all started. That's amazing. So at this point, you kind of decided you're going to do the entire Lost in Space episode. But like you said, you needed the voices. So what got you going finally in the direction of pursuing that? Well, after I played with those little dinky videos that I did, I thought, well, I want something better. And so the very next thing I did, I thought, what if I created a fake movie trailer, you know, a Lost in Space animated movie? So what I did is I downloaded the audio of the trailer for the Lost in Space movie which is quite generic if you listen to it. And I thought, what if I took that particular audio clip and then put on that animation and made it look like an animated movie that was coming out? And so I did do that. I had to think about what do I want to see? You know, I wanted to see the get to do fly by, uh, you know, some sort of large spaceship, kind of like from the derelict. I wanted to see that. I wanted to see explosions. I wanted to see Don shoot a, a ray gun. And it was just little things that I, I wanted to see happen. I made it up to where these things would go in and it would look like they all belonged in the same movie. And I ran it and I think I put it out there in 2010 or so. This is after I'd really been practicing a lot. It's also on my YouTube channel. It's gotten quite, you know, several thousand views. And the funny thing I thought about it was is that people would comment on this and say, when is this coming out? This looks great. And, of course, I look at it now and go, well, yeah, but it's still not there yet. But it was an interesting first effort. And then later on, before I tried to do the full episode, I kept thinking, you know, it would be really cool if you could somehow take all the voices off the episodes, you know, have them say in certain words and be able to string them together into sentences. But, yeah, you know, you really can't because, you know, the inflection would be wrong and it would, it would sound very choppy. And so then I thought, well, what if you actually took individual lines 
and you just decided, I'm going to build a whole new story based upon individual lines that these people say. I go, well, that's interesting. Well, what would it be? So then someone commented on my video. I think on maybe it was on the trailer. I don't remember. I had a lot of comments. But one, one person said, what I really want to see is Major West deck Dr. Smith. I want to see him punch him and knock him to the ground. Because, you know, that's always what, you know, Major West is always threatening to do to Smith. And I go, well, that'd be kind of funny. I went out and I found these, uh, this is another thing that helps an animator. These files that you can import, they're motion control files. And Poser allows you to do this. They're called BVH, they're BioVision files. Mm -hmm. And what they are is essentially an entire animated sequence of what a character would do, like just walking out on the stage and bowing, or maybe throwing a punch, or maybe taking a punch and going to the ground. And you don't have to then animate it. You can then tweak it and kind of refine it, but you can load it into your character, and it will actually play. And I actually downloaded all the free ones I could off the internet, and, and since that time, I actually bought a few from a place called True Bones. You know, and it makes your characters do all sorts of cool things. So I found one that threw a punch, and I found one that took a punch and fell to the ground. That's okay. Let me animate that. Let me see what that looks like. And I did it with my Don West character and my Dr. Smith character. Then I had to figure out what was Dr. Smith going to say. You know, I had to go back and listen to episodes and figure out which ones I wanted to pull. This is before the, of course, before the Blu-rays came out, and I was trying to figure out what pieces to use to actually create a story. But I wanted to showcase all the other characters that I've created as well, and even upgraded since I had done the little trailer. And that's called The Revenge of Major West. But it all started with the punch to Dr. Smith that I had to create a story around it. And again, I look at it now, and the characters aren't very good because I use very crude hair models, and they just don't look as good as what I've come up with since then because it took more learning. So I did all that, and then the big thing that changed was the discussion about whether or not there was going to be a Blu-ray of the Lost in Space series. You know, we heard rumors Kevin Burns had actually produced a test in HD, a high definition, put it out on YouTube for people to see, and it was just spectacular because you know the Blu-rays do look spectacular. I mean, you just the detail compared to the very poor quality of what was on the DVD. I thought, yeah, this has got to get done. And, you know, so it was out there. I kept thinking, man, if I could get a Blu-ray, I could actually get screen caps of their faces and I would have better source material to create better models. That would really be cool if I you know, were able to do that. Well, as I began to refine my models, the idea came to me. There was this song that stuck in my head. I don't know if you're familiar with it. You probably are. It's by Daft Punk. It's called Get Lucky. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little catchy tune. And I thought, you know, I've been playing around with those little dancing movements. What if I had my Lost in Space characters dance? I mean, this is the thing that goes through your mind, you know, as you're thinking about stuff like this. So I created this one called Lost in Space, Get Lucky. And I was working on it in the fall of 2014. And that song was on the radio all the time. It stuck in my head. And I said, I'm going to do a little dance routine to this. So I continued to refine the characters a little bit. I basically created it where they're dancing to this song. And I even at the time created a Cyclops because I wanted him dancing as well. So I finished this thing. I was just refining the very end of it in January 2015. I had already decided I wanted to make this to be a push for wanting to get lost in space on Blu-ray. I basically said, you know, let's get lucky. Let's get lost in space on Blu-ray. That's what we want. I put the titles on the end. I was just getting ready to push the button to put this out on YouTube when I heard that Bill Moomy had announced that Lost in Space would be coming to Blu-ray, and it would be for the 50th anniversary. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is pretty timely. So I put it out there. 
in January 2015, and I got a, a lot of good feedback. And I remember one day it just started, you know, the numbers started taking off. And then I don't know who told me or how, but I found out that Angela Cartwright had actually posted it on her page. She said, well, this is fun. And she saw my video and she posted it. I go, hey, I've got a license-based cast member that thinks what I did is fun. That's pretty cool. You know, you do it kind of in honor of the characters they created. And so for them to say they like what you did, hey, that means something. So I put it out there and it's still out there on my YouTube channel right now, but it's just a little quirky little video. So I could not wait till this Blu-ray came out. Then I heard right before it came out that they were putting all these extras on there. And then they said that they put this extra on there where they basically did a table read of the script that Bill Mooney had done, I think, in the early 80s called The Epilogue. I thought, if their voices are on there, oh, my gosh, this is what I've always wanted. If I could actually have their voices on Blu-ray, actually reading and acting through an episode that has never been aired before, I thought this would be great. I could actually animate this. This is something I'd always wanted, and I thought, I wonder if there's going to be a way that I can easily extract that and, and get it off the DVD so I can clean it up and do what I need to do and actually then match it up to the characters that I have and create an animated episode or even animate the entire read. It was a table read. I thought, I'll animate the whole thing. So I waited, and I waited patiently. The Blu-rays came out. They did not disappoint. And let me say for all your listeners, if you are a Lost in Space fan, or perhaps even if you are not a Lost in Space fan, you might go buy this. Because for a 1965 to 68 TV show, this is an unbelievable set to own. You've got so many extras on there. You know, this set was created with blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of love, a lot of passion by Kevin Burns, Sheila Allen, who made this thing possible. And for us fans, you can see it in there with the extras of the time and the effort that they put into this. It's one of the best sets of Blu-rays out there, I think, ever. And considering the fact this is a 50-year-old series, for them to have gone back and done this, it just it, it's really quite amazing. You really should get the Blu-ray. It is. Um, it's awesome. It's great. It, 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 it's great to sit there and watch it. And you can see things you don't normally see. There's detail you don't normally pick up. I know that recently, you know, you were looking at the Magic Mirror episode. And that's when you can really see the line in the sand with the, the mirror, you know, when the monkey goes behind the mirror. And, and mm -hmm. that's really quite interesting. I never noticed this before. But then again, it was all meant to be shown in a 480 interlaced image that had snow in it from the mid-60s. I mean, nobody's <laughs> going to look at that stuff. Right. So that's cool. But anyway, I was able to pull off the voices. And then it was just a matter of sitting down at that time, Lane, and figuring out, okay, what do I need to make this? Because they talk about certain things in there. There's set pieces. There's things that I need to come up with. And so I spent probably the first year creating models, creating the jetpack model, because I knew I wanted to have that, because there's certain things in there I wanted to be in there. Even though they just mentioned in the, the table read, I wanted to actually show it. So I went through about a year of just preparation, and it, and it was very time-consuming. Actually, I just got retired. That, that's right. And I was able to spend a lot of time doing that. What were the biggest challenges you faced converting the table read into an episode? Because now you'd committed to doing that, right? You were going to take this and yes. fulfill your dream of having a, a new episode of Lost in Space, albeit animated. Exactly. And so, you know, the first thing that I did was I thought, you know, I want to see what this is even going to look like. 
I had to work on the expressions because I wanted them to look better than a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. I didn't want it to be real static. It didn't have to look photorealistic, but it just needed to look a little more than a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the, you know, the 60s. So I decided, you know, I need to have some test footage. I need to go out there and animate a scene that I like and see what it looks like. So the first thing I did was I took the scene between Will Robinson and Dr. Smith later in the story where Will asked Dr. Smith, why were you on board the Jupiter 2 when we took off? It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing. So that was the first thing I did. I just sat down and did that. It was one set. It was very easy to keep the camera in one area. But, you know, you still have to think in terms of how the camera's going to move and make it look cinematic. But still, I thought, you know, I can do this one scene and then post it and just see what reaction I get. And I got positive reaction from it. You know, I really want to do this whole thing, but how am I going to do it? I realized I needed a really good chariot model, so I had to fix that. I needed a jetpack. I had to learn how to do that. There was something that happens at the end of the show that's a little bit of a surprise, and I had to, to learn how to do that. And so the challenges were, first, creating the characters exactly as I wanted and being happy with them. And I ran through several iterations of all the characters and I kept improving their sculpt, the facial expression, the way their faces were built. And I had to actually bring the model out of Poser and put it into another program, tweak it, and then import it back into Poser. And that was something I had to learn how to do because Poser can only do so much and it's a little bit limited. But when I took it into this 3D package, I could do pretty much anything I wanted. And the only limit I really had was how detailed the actual model was because you've got to, well, this is going to get real technical, but you have to create and save it with the same number of polygon faces on the model, which are the dots that all connect. Because if you change that, then suddenly all the other things that go on with that model, the ability to smile, the ability to blink, to open your mouth, to raise an eyebrow or, or whatever, all that would go away. So you had to preserve that. So you had to work within the confines of that particular model. So I did that, oh gosh, all through the summer of 2016. Then I decided, okay, now's the time that I can start putting this thing together. And do I want to do the whole thing? Initially, I did start out doing the whole thing. The challenge was the time it took to do it. The renderings would run all night long just to get, you know, 30 seconds maybe of something. And it, this just went on for months and months and months. But once I got into it, I realized that what I wanted to do was, you know, I want this to really look like just an episode of Lost in Space, which is going to be 52 minutes. But here I had this table read. It's about 75 minutes to 80 minutes long. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to cut stuff out of it. And some of it I'd already rendered and animated. And I was very pleased with it and everything. But I realized I was going to have to start making some cuts. So I went to Wonderfest, as you well know, and I had a rough cut of it. I didn't have it all done yet. And I showed it to a group of B9 robot builders. Uh, one of the things came back that said, well, you know what? You've given Judy short hair. And I said, yeah, but in fact, it looks like Marta's hair does now. You met her at the convention mm -hmm. recently, and mm -hmm. it looked exactly like that. But what one of my friends said, Craig, I will not mention his name, but it was Craig. He said, <laughs> Phil, he goes, if it's going to be Lost in Space 15 years from the original show, Marta's got to have long hair. She's got to have long hair. And, it's, and he goes, it's not going to look right. And I go, yeah, but she's, she's a mother now in the show. And so we're trying to make it look like it's a little different. And he goes, it's got to have long hair. And so he finally convinced me that I needed to do that. So I, the first thing I had to do was go back and re-render every shot that she was in with short hair to make it long hair. So I had to change the model. I had to go back and redo it, hope it matched everything. There weren't any gotchas. I had to save all my files from the original one. And that took a while. 
to just get cleaned up. That was a very big challenge. And then you got to start thinking about, well, what am I going to cut? And there's some scenes on the Blu-ray that I did because I made myself a Blu-ray because at the end of the day, I did this for myself and I did it as a dedication to the cast and I wanted to be pleased with it. But I decided that there's going to be some deleted scenes here because I was having to take things out. I had spent hours, weeks creating and taking elements of the story away because it did not serve the 52-minute episode that I wanted to tell. And it still ended up being about 55 minutes because I couldn't take some things out. But I took out enough. And I felt, oh, this must be like, you know, when you're a real filmmaker and you film things and they end up on the cutting room floor. And it just, I hated throwing my babies out. The pieces that I really liked, I thought there's some really good scenes between Penny and Judy as characters, me, Marta, and Angela as actors. And I thought they played these scenes really well. But I thought, you know what? It isn't important to the thrust of the story. And so, you know, you think back to those Mark Cushman books and you think about the description of how the story editors were trying to figure out how to make things fit in time and things they had to toss. And and so in a way, it kind of made me feel the same way. I didn't want to get rid of it, but I had to because, A, I wanted to finish filming this while I was still alive or finish rendering it because it was taking forever. But more importantly, I I said, okay, it's going to have to fit within the confines of a regular episode, which I decided there would be an opening, there would be four acts, and there would be a tag or an epilogue at the end. And that's what I wanted it to be. And you know, I wanted to make sure it had Stinger on the end. And the reason I wanted the Stinger on the end is because I had to have Jonathan Harris' scream in there. <laughs> the thing was, is not anywhere does he scream in the entire table read. But I thought, it's going to scream at the end of this one. And so I changed the ending just to have that in there and also just for fun. And because yeah. I wanted to make it my version of it. And so uh, that was a challenge. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the other piece that was also a challenge is when you're watching this table read, the actors sometimes make other noises that's not the voices, like they'll tap the table or they'll hit their hand on the table. There's a scene where Angela slaps her hand on the table when she says, you know, I want to get off this planet. She's pow, and she hits the table. Well, I have to have that in the, in the, the animation or it's not going to make any sense. You're going to say, where's that noise coming from? And so I have to match that up with her, whatever she's doing. There is a scene where Veronica Cartwright is turning pages from her script and you hear pages turn. So I thought, what am I going to do with that? And so there's a scene between the character John Robinson and Maureen Robinson and they're talking about what they're going to do when they get back to Earth. So what did I do? I put a book model into the model of Maureen Robinson, and I made it look like she was turning pages. You can hear those on the soundtrack because you couldn't get those out. I mean, it, you just didn't have the voices. You had everything that was going on. And sometimes even some music that you didn't want. Sometimes I used it. Sometimes I didn't. But luckily, I was able to extract it in such a way that the music was very low and faint for the most part. So if I put any other music in there, it would drown it out. You wouldn't even hear it. Uh, wow. Those were the things I had to think about as I went through it. But I'm very pleased with how I got got it down to 55 minutes or so. Well, it's absolutely beautiful. And I was going to ask you how you came up with the title, Miracle in Space, but you've just answered it. When you go through all these challenges, it's kind of a miracle <laughs> you you even got through this, Phil. It's impressive. Yeah, I guess. You know, I never thought of that, Lane. And I, I played around with a lot of different titles. I said that I wanted the word space in there. So I'm thinking, okay, it's a miracle they get off the planet. So maybe it's just miracle in space. That's kind of what I thought. But maybe it was a miracle I could even get it done in the time that I did it. But overall, I worked on this thing for two years. It's absolutely beautiful. And for the listeners who haven't seen it, I just want to describe it because I was first made aware of computer-generated animation. I think the first time I ever really paid attention to it was when the movie's Toy Story came out, if you remember that. Yes. That was a very kind of a cartoonish take on CGI animation. 
animation. And of course, now everything with the video games and CGI in the movies, it's very sophisticated. And what you've done here with Miracle in Space is much more realistic. You're saying it's not photorealistic, and I, you're the expert, but the work you did to get them to look like the characters. And of course, they're not the characters we remember from the 1960s show. It's they've, they've aged. They've been lost in space for, I guess, what, 20-something years in the story at that point. So you did a beautiful job with that. But I, I want to ask you another question, because this is just something that interested me. I loved the eclectic choices that you made for the different characters' costumes. Can you walk us through that a little bit and why you picked what you picked? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. So I always wanted to see Dr. Smith's first season costume in color. And so, you know, you finally would find some publicity shots within color. And I go, you know, I kind of like that navy blue and red. Therefore, I'm going to give Jonathan Harris that. And I just decided that for the male characters, I was going to pick a costume that I think that, you know, I like them in or whatever. And so for John and Will, I picked their season three. For Don West, I picked a season two costume. And primarily because I remember Mark Goddard at one of the conventions said, you know, he said, man, he hated those turtlenecks. He just hated them. And I think what it was is a friend of mine, Bill Hedges, had brought a replica that looked like the Don West costume in season two. And he showed it to Mark Goddard and he made a comment about the open collar. He said, I love that open collar shirt. He said, I, I hated those turtlenecks. He goes, they were hot. They, they itch. He said, the mm. open collar shirt was my favorite. And so therefore, I said, you know what? That's the outfit he's going to get. For Joshua West, what I decided to do, he's the offspring of uh, Major West and Judy. What I decided to do was give him a uh, Bill Mooney season one light blue velour shirt, you know, with the, the collar, the turtleneck collar. And I always made the assumption that they would still have that on the ship. So for the women's uniforms, I decided that I was going to use something completely different because I did not want to go through the pain and the anguish of having to model those to make them look like season three uniforms or whatever. So what I did was I used a downloadable figure model that was meant for poser characters, take clothes and make them fit that model. And then it was just a matter of color scheming them in a certain way that everybody could look at it and go, yeah, that's Maureen. She's wearing green and gold. Or yes, that's Judy. She's got the, you know, the yellow and the purple and the, uh, green going there, like from season three, and then for Penny, the orange and the yellow. And so I, I made them be reminiscent of the those particular seasons, two and three, I guess, for the female characters. But it's really, it's the same exact outfit. The other thing that you could do with that outfit, you could decide how far down you wanted that front and zipper zipped. And so for Penny, I have it a little bit further down because she's young and she's vivacious and she's, you know, she's in her late 20s in the, in the show. And so since Judy is like early 30s or whatever, I had her zipped up, you know, a little bit more. I mean, it's a little bit more modest. And then for Maureen, I had it zipped up all the way because I wanted it to be reflective of the character's ages. So therefore, the zipper being lowered a little bit more for Penny, a little bit less for Judy, and zipped up all the way for Maureen kind of dictates an age of 28, you know, early 30s and, you know, uh, late 40s to 50. So I was just trying to make it look like that's who they were. I didn't want them all to have it zipped down the same amount or all zipped up. I wanted them to look a little differently. But that was one of the modifications that you could actually do on the costume that I thought, hey, I'm going to do it because I can, and it makes it look a little better. Well, it's subtle, but it certainly paid off. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate mm-hmm. you explaining that because it really was cool to me to see all that. So speaking of details, I understand that you intentionally put some Easter eggs into your presentation. Would you like to share any of that with us? Yes, I would. I did this because it's something I wanted to see. And so I'll go through the Easter egg list here. And at the first part of the video, there's a scene with Penny in her cabin. And so I decided, okay, Penny's going to have 
artwork on her walls. And so there's actually publicity shots of the cast that I stuck on the wall that, you know, might be pictures that as a character she would have had for whatever reason of the family. And maybe it was taken in alpha control or whatever. But I thought that was kind of funny to actually put those pictures in there. The other thing I did with that is I took some of my daughter's art and I put it on the wall too, because I needed some artwork. So I used my daughter's art and I put it on the wall as well. Cool. There's a scene later on in there where uh, there's a guy that created this Jupiter Q technical guy that's got a lot of diagrams in it and everything. You can, you can buy it on Amazon or whatever. He, he's a guy I know. So I said, hey, shoot me a copy of the cover of that thing and take out the word lost in space and I'll have it laying around somewhere. And I actually have it laying up on the flat console at one point, particular uh, videos towards the end. One thing, Bill Hedges collects blueprints and it's usually blueprints of how they had like stage six laid out or whatever is, you know, for particular episodes. Well, in one scene, they're all sitting around this round table trying to figure out whether they're going to leave the planet. And I thought, gee, I'd like to have a map of the planet setting out there. But I thought, I don't have that. But what I do have is a copy of Bill Hedges's blueprint, which is an actual production copy of what they used on Lost in Space. And that's what it looks like. It looks like a blueprint laying on the uh, table. And what it is, it's a blueprint of, I think it's the episode, Follow the Leader. I don't know why, just the way it was laid out and it's there. You would never notice it, that that's what you're looking at, but that's what it is. It's a blueprint of follow the leader. So I thought that was kind of funny. I put the robot assembly manual in there in several spots. Uh, There's a scene in Will's room where I thought, how can I get Robbie the robot in there? You know, the the robotoid from War of the Robots. And so I put a little toy in there. So when he's talking to Joshua in one scene, Joshua picks it up and is kind of playing with it, but it's the robotoid. And Mm. I I conjectured that perhaps Will Robinson made uh, carved it or made it, you know, out of materials at some point to remember that robot for whatever reason, just made it a little toy or whatever, and he had it in his room. There's a space pod, a miniature space pod in John Marine's cabin, but it's a very quick glance at you you, if you're not quick you're not going to catch it the whole reference to the ghost planet and that's all i'll say there is a gate 115 you'll see that uh (laughs) there is a national geographic solar system poster that you did see on lost in space it's in dr smith's cabin you saw that and one that a lot of people say they said they're really glad i did is i made the left hand the left claw the robot jiggle when it talks so that when it's saying the lines, if you look at the left hand, it's jiggling as though Bob May's in there working the switch to make the neon fire on and off. That so, great. <laughs> you know, you can see, yeah, you can see that actually in the real show. Once you, you know it's there, it's everywhere. I said, oh, I've got to have my robot do that. That's, you know, my little 3D robot. I've had to have that. The uh, walkie-talkie that Smith uses in uh, the Reluctant Stowaway, it makes an appearance. The little Aeolus 14 number walkie-talkie, that mm-hmm. makes an appearance. The three-note sound you get from Visit to Hades, the harp, you know, boom, boom, boom. You know, when you go down to where Morbius is, you know, down in that episode called A Visit to Hades, there's an important thing about musical note in this particular episode. And so I thought, well, I might as well use that. I thought that would work perfectly. Uh, The space croppers moons are in there. There's a scene where Will's playing green sleeves, just like he did in No Place to Hide in some of the early episodes. Um, And there's also, it's in a deleted scene, though, I had a cyclamen plant model for Judy and Don's cabin that's in there when they have a scene between themselves. But that scene was cut, so it's on the deleted scene. And if you look on the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, you will see it, Lane. So it is there, and uh, I, you know, those are the kinds of things I'd put in there. You know, I, I had to have the jetpack, had to have the chariot. I had there's just things I wanted to do. Oh, and there's one other scene that's in there when they're blasting off from the planet. I actually took that famous sequence 
where the Jupiter 2 is wobbling as the fireballs are going off. I mapped it so that my animation looked just like that. In other words, the movement of the Jupiter 2 is exactly the same, where it wobbles back and forth in a very unrealistic fashion. But to me, that there's a lot of charm in that shot. I really like it. It's an iconic shot, and so I had to have that in there. So oh, that's great. Anyway, well, I, so that, I, I did that because I just wanted to have fun. Well, I didn't catch them all. Now that I've got you on tape with this, I get to go back and watch it again and pick those out. So that's fun. And yeah. honestly, the stinger is the big payoff at the end. I have to, <laughs> to say that really surprised me, but we won't give it away. A lot of people were. No, don't give it away. You got to watch it all the way to the end. But I had to have Jonathan Harris to scream in there. I just had to have it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so it's I perfect. did. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Miracle in Space, it's awesome. Well, we've kept you on a long time, Phil, but I do want to mention for the listeners, and we're going to link to this in the show notes, your YouTube channel is definitely worth the price of admission. You've got so many great videos. I thought we'd get time to talk about more of them during this interview, but I just want to mention a couple of them that I really appreciate real quickly. And one of them is, I think this was an early one that you did. It's called Lost in Space Virtual Tour of Stage 6 in 1965. Yes. Not, not a real long video, but I loved that, and I linked to it on on that episode because it takes you behind the scenes in the filming of the episode um, one of our dogs is missing that was really very good also you've got one on there called uh, Lost in Space Palooza which is a lot of live action stuff but you guys actually took a trip out west to some of the filming locations can you tell us about a li- just a little bit about both of those videos And sure sure so let me talk about the stage six one first uh, I had another copy or a little JPEG of the a scan of Bill Hedges' blue prints that he got and he bought them off eBay. And it was a layout of stage six. It was for an episode. Uh, I think it was one of our, yeah, it was one of our dogs is missing. And I could see where they put the craters and all this. I also, at the same time, as I was watching the Blu-ray, begin to notice that there's this really smooth rock in there. And once you see it, it's one, the crater monster carries Judy across. It's the one, you know, chases her across. Once you see it, it's in every shot. It's everywhere. And you can pretty much figure out exactly where you are on stage six every time you see it. And so then I I thought, well, if I were to put that into a video and animate it, I could actually show not only one of our dogs is missing, because what I tried to do is to match up actual screen grabs to the way it would look in that particular stage, but also the other episodes that use similar, that similar rock. And it appears everywhere. So I, what I did is I put the camera around so that it shows that rock from different angles. Then I superimpose over that the actual scene from the episode that uses it. So you can kind of see how they set this thing up. I don't know if it's 100% accurate. I do know that Mike Clark looked at it and he thought it was pretty good. And you've had Mike Clark on recently. But it was just some fun because, once again, I like to peel the curtain back. I want to see what's going on. I like the behind the scenes. And so I just created this little video showing, hey, this is stage six. And they're, in fact, if you, when you get in there, you'll notice on the uh, placard, it said, you know, where people are supposed to be. It says Angela and Billy should be in school or something because they're not in there. But the rest <laughs> of the cast is standing around up next to the chariot that's off to the side of the stage. But they're not in there. They're in school. So uh, I thought that would be kind of funny. And then as far as the Lost in Space Palooza, a bunch of friends of mine, once again, the B9 Builders Club, you have the Internet, you know these people, you see them at conventions. We all decided that we wanted to go out to Red Rock Canyon and out to the Trona Pinnacles and Ridgecrest. The catalyst for this was Bill Hedges. He had built a little miniature two-foot remote control chariot. 
And this chariot is totally remote controlled. He put figures in it. It's it's quite amazing when you see it up front. You may have seen it at Wonderfest. I, I did. think it was sitting there. Yeah, it was sitting at Ron Gross's table. Anyway, we decided we want to go out there and we want to film this chariot and just create our own scenes. So long story short, we went out to Red Rock Canyon, found the rock where you fly the the Jupiter two past, you know, and that that famous shot. We tried to recreate that with someone who brought a Jupiter two. We had some fishing line and we were crashing it into rocks and we felt like a bunch of 10 year old kids. We were having a ball. It was a lot of fun. At the Toronto Pinnacles, Bill Hedges brought out his drone. This is right when drones were just first beginning to come out. We go, what is this? And he, it's a drone. He was flying that thing all over there and got some beautiful shots that are, that are high up on the Toronto Pinnacles. And then we also filmed his chariot actually like in a gully. And we tried to create a little film out of it, you know, where it looked like there was a cyclops there. And we just had a lot of fun. But, you know, I'm a kind of a nut for movie locations. I like to go see where things are really filmed. Going out to Red Rock Canyon, going to Toronto Pinnacles, and even the Vasquez Rocks, which they never use for Lost in Space, but a lot of stuff like Star Trek has been filmed there. We did that as well. Uh, it was a, a really fun weekend when we went out there and did that, and we, we were all little kids again, and that's I guess that's what it was all about. Oh, it's great. It's a clever film. I, I really appreciated the shots where you superimposed the screenshots of the chariot over yes. the backgrounds, and so you can actually see, hey, those rocks, they haven't changed mm-hmm. that much in mm-hmm. 55 years or however long long it's been yeah they they, they haven't and uh i recently had noted i put a post on facebook that i was watching westworld and the season two finale of westworld the last two take place at the toronto pinnacles and there's a scene of them standing right by the main character standing right by that rock that john robinson supposedly flies around in his jetpack it's just right there and i've parked my car right next to that and it was really cool that they used that because it is kind of an outer, another worldly looking spot. And it was certainly suitable for Westworld as it was for Lost in Space. I wish oh. the new Netflix series would actually go out there and film something just for fun. That would be a great throwback, wouldn't it? It would be. Yeah. Well, gosh, Phil, you've been so generous with your time. We've had a blast talking. I certainly have. And I love your YouTube channel. We're going to link to that. People need to go out there and check that out. You're a prolific Facebook poster, and you've got some great uh, insights from all the years you've been studying Lost in Space. And I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to have you on Alpha Control. It's just been really a lot of fun speaking with you today. I love getting to meet you in person. I can't wait to see you again in person. This is going to be a treat for our listeners. In addition to your YouTube page, we'll certainly link to anything else you'd like to send us. Where can people catch up with you otherwise? Primarily my YouTube page is going to be the best one. I'm certainly on Facebook, but the YouTube page is where I put my work out and actually uh, put my little videos out there, my fun. (laughs) So that's great. That'd be the best. You're very passionate about it and it's exciting to hear it in your voice. You should be very proud of what you've done and we expect more to come. So it's been an honor speaking with you, Phil. We will talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye now. I really loved it. Thank you. That was a blast talking with Phil Hamilton. You can tell he's truly passionate about his CG movies and Lost in Space, and I can't wait to catch up with him again. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at 
alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.